Hey guys, in this AB Talks with Sarah, you will listen to a bold, resilient woman who's willing to be vulnerable and share her story with you that hopefully will benefit a lot of people. Ready? Mm-hmm. Can we start? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're good. Yeah. So we start by saying, how are you really doing? I, I'm good. I just got back from Mexico, so I'm just trying to catch up with myself. Um, I went on a trip to ground myself and I came back further away from Earth than possible. So I'm just trying to figure out kind of how I actually am. And I haven't had the time to ask myself that. So thank you for asking. I don't know. I feel messy. I feel messy today and tired. Do you feel messy because you still didn't build back your routine or? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I haven't had routine this entire year, though. It's been, it's kind of just been like, whatever I feel like doing, I'll do. And for some reason, that's drinking a lot. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what made you smile today? <laughs> um, uh, this... <laughs> I don't know if I can say it. Um, this you can say anything you want. This this guy that I have been um, seeing, <laughs> I called him earlier today so I could. So I was just like, "Hey, I need a pep talk. I'm feeling really exhausted." <laughs> and so he gives me this pep talk, and then um, he ends he ends the call with like, "He's like, okay, go kill it. Love you, bye." And he's never said that before. <laughs> And so I just watch him spiral and he's like, Wah! and then he hangs up the phone and I just sit there laughing because like, I know he didn't mean to say it, but it was just like, it was adorable. And yeah, it is beautiful <laughs> because, because uh, we put so many filters and so many safeguards. We all do it. I do it. Maybe you do it. And we always are so afraid to be. I think vulnerability is also training. You train yourself to be vulnerable because everything else teaches you not to be. You yeah. Know? So yeah. that moment uh, with the guy you're dating is a nice moment. You know, it's a, <laughs> a pure, pure moment, I would say. Yeah, it was definitely pure. And I, I mean, I think I just, yeah, I don't know. I put a lot of pressure on um, him saying I don't want him to say it yet and like I've seen him almost say it a few times and I'm just like ah and I run away <laughs> and so like I think I just need to be more accepting of like those moments because it doesn't need to have like I love you doesn't need to have the weight that you know we put on it it doesn't it, it should just be natural like you say like candid and vulnerable and it's like whatever yeah how did you respond saying thank you or you actually said I love you no I said because he, he freaked out so I was like it's okay bye <laughs> <laughs> yeah so okay. so uh, I want to go way back I want to rewind so we'll okay. start by asking how was your childhood uh, it's such a complex question like <laughs> which part <laughs> um whatever part my childhood was it was uh if I had a word for it I mean, it was great and it was terrible. It was, it affected my entire life as an adult. So um, I grew up in Australia. Uh, my parents immigrated from Palestine and Jordan. And 
yeah, it was it was really conflicting because um, at home we were being raised super conservative, very like uh, I want to say very like traditional. And then when I was at school, I was surrounded by a bunch of white kids who were very rebellious and completely against anything my parents were teaching us. So um, I never really found a world where I fit in. Um, and I've said this before, but like at home, I was you know, too Western for my parents. And then at school, I was too Arab for my peers. So it was like, it was just really complicated. And then beyond that, there was like things that were happening behind closed doors at home that were fucking with like the way I perceived myself as a, as a woman, I would say, or a girl at the time. And I don't know, it was complex. You gotta, you gotta be more specific. <laughs> hmm. And your relationship with your parents, how would you describe them? Um, I would say I, I feel like today I play the role of my parents to my parents. Um, I'm very protective over them. Uh, I feel like no one ever asked my mom how she is really like, and so I feel like whenever we get on the phone um, and I ask her how, how she's doing, um, it's like no one's asked her that since we last spoke. Like she gets so um, consumed in that answer and it just makes me feel so sad that I can't be there for her um, because I know she's being the mum for everyone else and no one's being the mum for her. And so I wanna say my mum my, my and I are very, very close. Um, my dad and I, I, I love him, but we don't really talk as much as I do. Like I speak to my mum every day every morning our time difference like my morning her night she says good night to me like on she'll just send me a facebook message and if i don't respond she'll be like hello <laughs> like, and she'll keep messaging me and calling me until i just say good night back because she just wants to make sure like i'm alive and well so that's kind of the relationship we have yeah i think um a good point that you mentioned is uh, who cares for the caretaker and who photographs the photographer yeah. and that's always sometimes when i see the photographers working with us and i'm like bro just come in the picture let anybody take a picture at the end because you're never and on on camera you're never seen and who gives you the attention that you're giving everybody else so your yeah. mother falls into that pocket you know yeah but it keeps me up at night. Like I really worry about her. Um, and I've been this way since I was a child because um, I feel like I wasn't protected as a kid as much as they thought they were protecting me. And so, um, you know, I would wake up in the middle of the night when the house was quiet because my parents would always stay up till 4 a.m. watching Turkish TV and Arabic TV. And like, I'd always hear the, um, the drama, the soap operas that they watch. And there's just so much yelling and screaming on the coming from the TV. And so after 4 a.m. when it was quiet and they've gone to bed, I would wake up because suddenly the silence was so deafening because I'm so used to, you know, the loud noise. And I would, I would fear for them. I would get out of bed and I would be the one to go and check on them to make sure they're alive and they're good because I didn't have them doing that to me. Um, and, and it was just this weird, like reverse role that I was playing as a child, um, which was super interesting, but it, it carries on till today. Like my biggest fear is like my mom passing away, um, because she plays like this. I, I just feel so protective over her, but she feels, she feels my heart in such a way that I don't think it could ever be replaced. Like, I mean, and 
a lot of people can say this about their mums, but it, it would keep me up at night, the fear of losing my mum, because I just, I don't know, it's a weird thing that I have, like it haunts me, it's so strange. It makes uh, me an anxious? It makes me sad, it just, it's, yeah, it, it, it's a, I, I just don't know what life would be like without this woman who constantly is there, you know? Um, the, do you think worrying so much about your mother and, you know, God bless her and give her a long, healthy life, but yeah. worrying about that, do you think it spoils the moment? Um, of what moment though? Present, now. Yeah, it does. And I've, I've gotten better at nurturing these thoughts and knowing they come, they're coming from a place of fear and not like, what is the point of thinking like life and death is inevitable. We're all going to die. So it's just very strange that this was the thing my mind decided to like obsess over, like the fear of losing my mom, <laughs> like wh why that specific thing of all things. And um, but no, I, in this day and age, in this present time, I've, I'm doing a really great job of not thinking that way, but it is something that haunted me like over the years. It's, it's a very normal thing, I think. And I think a lot of us, and I, you, you were asking yourself the question, like why this specific thing is haunting yeah. you. But I thought it's extremely normal because your mother obviously plays such a huge role and you that you're so protective of her and she's so dear to you and she's irreplaceable like you mentioned so just knowing that if that person is gone what a void they would leave and how much you would miss them is by default scary like i'm scared for you thank you, know? you. <laughs> and i am very close to my mother so i would understand and i accept that um when you know when her life will come to an end. And I hope also she has a beautiful, healthy, long life. But I know she's irreplaceable and I have to accept that, you know, but I have to also be extremely grateful and you should, with me, we should be very grateful for them, for being able to share our lives with such human beings. Yeah. It's a, it's a privilege, it's a blessing, you know? Yeah, and, and with that, like, I, I often catch myself getting annoyed that my mom messages me constantly until I reply, but then I always have to ground myself in the fact that I'm so blessed to have a woman who cares about me this much. And, and that always like, it's just like, you have to be grateful. You can't get annoyed. Like this is, you are her life as much as she is yours. And like, even though she pesters me and she drives me insane sometimes, like, it's, it's just, it's coming from a place of love and care. So you can't get angry at that. You just have to be grateful, you know? Mm -hmm. Is it true yeah. that um, with your parents regarding your work, you don't discuss work because you'll never see eye to eye? Uh, it's, it's bigger than that. Um, my, my relationship with my art is, it's obviously very personal. It comes from like so deep within, um, but my, I have been westernized in this way. I have been colonized. My mind is very different to the way my mom thinks as an art of woman, you know? And, and so when she sees, when she, she has seen my work in the past and instead of calling me, she'll call my sister and she'll just be crying her eyes out. She's like, how can Sarah say these things? Why is she saying fuck? Why is there women naked? And like, um, 
And then eventually when she calms down and my sister's like, it's just art, mom, like, don't worry. Like, it's not who Sarah is or whatever. Um, she'll call me and I'm, and my sister's already given me the heads up. She's like, Sarah, mom called. She saw your latest series. She's not happy. <laughs> and then um, and I'm like, yes, mom, I know you saw my work. Do you want to talk about it? <laughs> and she'd be like why do you do this to me like and like just like always makes it about herself and I'm like mom it's not about you um and you know we fight we used to fight so much about it and because she just can't understand the way we think in this generation in white space in western spaces like because she's so she's so arab in this way she she, she still got that Middle Eastern mentality and she didn't change. Like she came to Australia, they've been there for over, I think 40 years now. And she is still as Arab as the day she came. And so it's like, there's no leniency. And, and so I said to her, I was like, mom, I wanna maintain our relationship. I love you so much. Let's just agree to never talk about my art. Let's just never discuss it because you're not going to understand how I think and and that's just it and you know we we can't we can't keep going back and forth so let's just agree to disagree and she was like okay Sarah but then every time we get on the phone even to this day she's like are you behaving in your art you said you're shooting today what are you shooting and like she's just always trying to find out um but yeah I have to protect her especially with my latest series Ev like there's she hasn't seen it I had to call all my cousins my aunties and my siblings and I was just like guys I'm doing this series it's very provocative uh it's the first time I'm modeling in my work and I'm saying the things that I've always said in my work I'm telling my story um and if mom sees it she's going to disown me or <laughs> never speak to me again or just like give me hell for the rest of my life so let's all actively work together to make sure she doesn't see this series and uh they're like okay Sarah yeah because they all support me but um and so she hasn't seen it to date and it's really funny because a lot of my followers are like has your mom seen it I see you're posting her does that mean she supports you like they're so excited thinking like she didn't react but the reality is she still hasn't seen the work so what yeah. about uh, your dad uh, he, I don't know. Um, he, he's always like when my mom's like nagging about my art. He's always just like, Khaliha, like it's art, like let her be. But I think um, when this series might affect both of them. So, but I haven't really thought about the consequences of what my dad would do if he sees it. I think he's very hypocritical in the way he responds. Like sometimes he's like super angry. And then sometimes he doesn't give a fuck. So it's like, I never know what to expect with him. It really just depends on his mood. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. How was um, the school? School? Uh, I mean, it was, it, uh, I, I didn't, yeah. I, <laughs> why is that such a hard question? Um, primary school like uh, was tough. I My parents put us in a very, private, wealthy, I want to say very much white school. And there was only a handful of brown kids. I don't even think there was like maybe one black kid in our class of like 60. But um, yeah, it was very much white, like very Western. And this is when I'm still like developing and like figuring out my place in the world. And so I was still very much, 
I want to say I was still very much Arab. I hadn't been colonized yet. And so in primary school, um, I was definitely picked on. I was bullied a lot by the, the, the girls and the boys. And um, yeah, I never really felt like I fit in. And, and I wasn't prepared to change because the people that I cared about the most were still my parents. And so it wasn't until my parents moved me to a different school, like a Christian school, um, that I decided like I wanted to, I didn't want to be bullied anymore. I wanted to be the cool kid. And so like, what could I change about myself in order to fit into these white spaces? And so um, when I moved schools, I came in with this like whole new attitude to protect myself. And I wore my, my hair like the kids at my primary school did. I was like very rude. I had like an attitude and yeah, it was like this like protective mechanism that I put on in order to exist safely in these spaces. And so um, in high school, I was actually like, a, I wanna say like a cool kid, but that means nothing in this day. Like, but at the time when you're young, like that's all you care about, about fitting in and being accepted. And, um, and so, yeah, I wanna say my high school was very different and my primary school was very uh, isolating and it was hard. Yeah, I, got, I did get, um, I got called like a dirty Arab and when 9-11 happened everyone referred to me as the terrorist and like because I was the only Arab in my class like things like that it was just you know but then high school was very different so. So the the tactic worked being rude and wearing different clothes and a different attitude made you actually popular or cool? It, it did for the first few years and then I got really um I actually got really sick. I had an anorexia for a, like from like grades, I want to say grade eight to 10. And um, when you're that psychologically consumed with the way you look, you have, I will at the time I had very little awareness of the, the way I was speaking to other people. And I brought down a lot of girls with me. Um, and I ended up being extremely toxic and developing toxic relationships that were built on uh, power and control and so yeah there was a time in grade nine where like everyone at school didn't talk to me anymore because I turned like two girls <laughs> sick with me I you know and I I was just like very um yeah it was it was toxic it was terrible and it was hard for me because I was like wow no one at school wants to talk to me I'm getting calls from like you know like some of the girls being like if you ever come back like we're going to um, fucking destroy you and come after you. Like it was just bad. And then I was like, all right, I need to get better because this is not this is not a way to live. And so by grade 10, 11, um, I actually found safety in Christianity again. And I became very religious again for like the last two years of my high school. Um, and, and then after that, we went off the rails again. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you, you're very open about uh, being sexually abused. And um, my question is, how bad was it? Which, like, how bad was the abuse mm -hmm. as a child? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I'm not that open. <laughs> um, no, it was, it, I mean, it was, I'm a little thrown off. Um, I, it was bad. It was bad. It wasn't, thankfully, it wasn't 
I mean, in terms of, no, I, uh, sorry, I didn't know how to talk about this. That's a really bad question. <laughs> you can't just ask that. <laughs> um, fuck. It was bad. It went on for like 10 years and it was not just like one person. It was three, three different people all doing it privately. It wasn't just happening to me. It was happening to other members of, you know, the family and, and we all grew up fucked up because of it. And we all had a really, really weird relationship with our bodies and our sexuality and these desires that made absolutely no sense. But we, it, we thought we were just assuming before we uncovered like it was coming from a place of like the way we learned affection and love and validation by men and so it, it I mean it's fucked it's, it's all fucked up I don't know what to say what do you want to know <laughs> I just want you to be as uh, as comfortable telling me whatever you want to tell me I'm not pushy and I don't want to be pushy I just want um I like I told you the show Sarah is about human beings and we've all been through fucked up uh, experiences. Maybe not all, maybe some people are a bit more fortunate, but I also refer to sometimes unfortunate experiences can be turned very fortunately. Like it can be your asset, it can be your edge that nobody has. And you can probably empathize with somebody who's been abused way more than a person who has a flowery uh, life. Uh, that cannot relate or help somebody who's in need. So I don't want to say that everybody goes through these tough uh, experiences. Some do and some don't. But the whole point is to ask you your story and how you are able to celebrate your life and accept it with the salt, the pepper, the sugar, everything that makes your, your journey or your art. I call your life or our lives a piece of art. So it has all, all kinds of colors. Um, how, how young were you? Uh, I think it started at three. My earliest memory was around three or four, yeah. You can remember three years old? Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. And did it took, you... well, it's, not, it's not something you just like remember. It takes being triggered and your trauma brain to be activated to then see like the memories and you only you don't ever get the full picture you just get like sensations or like physical feelings or like a, a flash like a literally how they how they portray it in movies obviously it came from truth like you get like like a flash like a moment and you're like the fuck what the fuck am i seeing right now where is this coming from and it's about giving your your brain and your soul and your body permission to allow access to those memories and that takes deep internal reflection and introspective and it takes microdosing on mushrooms like honestly <laughs> and and just like anything that allows you to feel safe to enter those really traumatic experiences um and yeah that's that's i guess that's how you remember things there is uh, something that has been repeated a few times that i've seen even on YouTube, which is Theta Healing. I don't know how popular it is in, in LA, what but- is it uh, Sorry, I didn't, I theta, didn't catch that. Theta Healing. Theta? Theta Healing. And it's a lot about um, kind of a therapy or a meditation that takes you back into your childhood experiences and traumas. And the trauma is not necessarily 
uh, rape, for example. It could be somebody just your parents saying, you look really fat. And from that moment, that little thing stuck somewhere in your head and made you insecure for the next rest of your life because yeah. of that comment. So the traumas can be very varied, but that's what the theta healing, apparently they take you back so you can untangle and address these things that you probably have blocked all these years, you know? Yeah. Um, no, that's true. It's we. I think in the first five years of our lives, we create um, beliefs and then from there on, that's how we develop as humans based on those beliefs that we've made based on what our parents or our surroundings or our environment has taught us. And so I think in my situation, when I think by the time I moved to America, um, I had all these beliefs about myself and, you know, my core was so diminished by all of it. So like, I always explain it like the onion theory, like we're born into this world as love. And then our first belief is our mom said, you know, our posture isn't right or <laughs> we're fat or whatever, or we're not allowed to be validated unless it's by men in private or whatever. And you, we, we grow so many beliefs and suddenly we have this huge onion and who we are as humans, how we actually enter the world is so lost. It's so hard to find because we let everyone else dictate who we are as opposed to just staying close to our truth. And so for me, when I moved to LA, I was 23, 24, I, one, of, one of the other, I can't remember to be honest off the top of my head, but um, I got to that point of existing so numbly at, and like having no awareness of who I was as an individual um, I was like very deep in drugs at this point and like just just completely existing like with no awareness and I didn't didn't really like who I was I didn't like how I was behaving or the actions I was doing or the pain I was causing on my body and so I, I had to go and go away and take the time to get back to my core and it's taken four years um, still unraveling all these layers and these beliefs I've had about myself um but yeah it's it it's not an easy fight like you have to really do the work and you have to figure out where every single layer came from when was the first time you made that belief that you were fat when was the first time you made that belief that you didn't have a good singing voice or whatever and you gotta do the work and you gotta do the inner child healing and it's just like it's never ending because every single person we meet impacts us subconsciously or consciously, whether we're, you know, whether we're aware of it or not. So yeah, it's a lot. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but. No, no, it's, it's good. Um, you made me think of a few things. It, it, you said it went on for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Where were the family acting oblivious or ignoring or unaware or did you try but you were rejected to complain uh, so i mean child sexual abuse in whether it's in the arab world or the western world it's it's a taboo it's a it's a big stigma that most people would rather deny than actually accept the fact that it's happening to their child and i've spoken to my mom about this on a on a large scale and she said she wasn't aware directly consciously aware that it was happening but she wasn't surprised when i told her and that's that to me says a lot because you know we were we were left in these 
house like in our house in our in our spaces on like completely unsupervised and like you know my parents and my aunties they'll all be in the kitchen making ahwe and tea and whatever and they'll just like check in on us occasionally but they wouldn't the eyes were never on us all the time and I think as parents it, it isn't easy to do you can't always be watching your child um and I can't speak to the details just because I I do want to protect the people in my in my family in my household but um yeah it in my situation it was um something that was easily like my parents just assumed I was safe but it was also ignorant for them to assume I was safe given the context of one of my predators for instance and yeah it's yeah I don't know <laughs> um two two points uh, the first point is uh, it's usually uh, like it's such a common thing like you said unfortunately it's such a common thing but extremely unaddressed because yeah. um it's very close to home and i'll say uh, the point is here is that usually it's from the people close to you whether it's a, a close friend of the family or an uncle or a brother or a it can be a woman, it can be a man, but it's usually the people you, you don't expect because they know that by default, just because they have a same family name or because they are longtime friends, that everybody assumes that you're automatically safe with them. And this is the scary part. And this is where I think the awareness is growing so much now due to the internet and due to people like you and many who speak you are as a parent today you have to be extremely cautious who the fuck your kid is with around who who yeah. like it doesn't matter if it's a, a driver a nanny a brother an uncle your neighbor your best friend yeah probably a normal guy but you don't know how it is he is with kids you don't know if there's that fetish somewhere so that's the first scary part but I also find it extremely scary that it's not ad addressed, but I kind of, Sarah, understand. I'll tell you an example. It's kind of like when a man uh, and a woman, they're in a relationship and the, let's say the man cheats or the woman mm -hmm. cheats, one of them, right? Usually the blame doesn't go on the partner. They, it goes on to the person they cheated with them. So the girl will beat up the girl instead of yeah. beating up her husband or her boyfriend. And you're like, why are you doing that? And I was thinking about this recently and I'm like, maybe because if they attack their partner, it's kind of like they're attacking their own choice because they yeah. chose that person. And now they're let down that your choice was bad. So when you go to a parent and you say, by the way, my uncle or my brother or da 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 da, -da is abusing me, it's so difficult to acknowledge and accept responsibility. Yeah. You don't want to believe. Well, let me, I mean, I'll, I'll give you, I mean, I, I agree and disagree with what you're saying, but I think it, it stems from, there's a situation, there's a memory that I have where I was sitting, I was, I think maybe I was like six and my cousin and I were in um, the bedroom. We'd been put there to like go to sleep and someone entered the room and they were being inappropriate. And um, we, my, my cousin and I were laughing, we were giggling because we we're young, we don't understand what's happening. Comes in and um, she like, I remember there was like screaming and the, the person left 
but then we were still laughing. And so as a result of this, she, um, she like hit us with the broom and like, and so we was technically being punished for what wasn't our choice, what wasn't our decision. And then I highly doubt, I obviously don't remember and I haven't brought this up to this specific uh, woman, but we, um, yeah, we ended up being the ones who were punished for what happened. And there was no word of what happened or what that um, male who entered the room did. So, and there was a lot of um, the, the power dynamics between like the man and the woman in, in my household and my environments, um, it was it was that, it was like very misogynistic. It was like only what the man wants and the woman just shuts up and cleans essentially. Um, and yeah, so when that happened to me as a child and I was being punished for the actions of man, that's like the woman protecting the man as opposed to protecting the child. And so that's like a very strange conditioning to then grow up with because I also became that I became someone who protected men over my my inner child. And so like we learn these behaviors and, and it's not right. That's these are beliefs that we have to undo in order to come back to ourselves and learn like, well, this doesn't work for me. I'm not going to silence my inner child. I'm going to use my voice and go after that fucking man and hit him with the broom, you know, but it, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> you said, Sarah, that you agree and disagree. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, as a society, we're evolving and I don't think things are as traditional as they used to be where women are getting stronger and asserting their voices in very male dominant spaces. And yeah, I think, I mean, that's why I agree and disagree because we are constantly evolving as humans. Absolutely. I think what you mentioned is so important is that all of us are extremely programmed. You know, we're conditioned. And you're right, women have been conditioned by hundreds of years to be more the gentle one and, uh, and the submissive, like you mentioned. And, and this is an issue because I've, I was talking to, um, to a, a girl about uh, sexual harassment at work. And we were talking about the intricate uh, details, not like the big, big uh, actions, like a guy uh, massaging your shoulders every fucking day while you're typing on your computer and he's your boss and I'm like you go through that every day and she's like yeah I'm like wow and then one uh, one story that I was told is that the HR complained to the girl that you sh why are you in a nutshell why are you pretty you're attracting attention and you're causing issues and I'm like instead of controlling the men who are abusing their power, you're blaming the woman for being pretty by nature? Like, I, I want to understand why is the blame going to her when she's just sitting in her office and she's not trying to do anything. She's not being provocative. She's not trying to be uh, tempt tempting people or attention. She's just being normal. And I was like, it's really fucked up that it's, it gets flipped on them. Women get blamed for looking nice or for smiling, you smile, khalas. that means you want him. And I'm like, what? So it was so eye-opening for me to yeah. listen to what, I know there is sexual harassment, but I never realized, Sarah, how it is literally a daily thing. If you're walking on the street and you're wearing uh, fitted clothes, you'll get some remarks. If you are at work, you get a remark. If, if you get rejected from a job just because you're attractive, like, what how 
Would a man ever face that because he's handsome? You know, so there's so many of these things and I don't know, it's a big topic, but I wanted to touch on it because your story is also interesting, you know? So how are you dealing with, with that since the abuse? How, how are you dealing with it till today? Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been doing the work. So I'm, I've been going through that healing process. And this is where I use my art specifically to help me um, nurture these wounds that I have in these beliefs. Because, you know, when you grow up as a, as a child who has been abused, you're, you know, you have coping mechanisms to deal with what, what's happened to you in order to survive. And like, for the longest time, I learned that um, apathy and numbing and anxiety was the way I would cope, completely compartmentalizing my experiences and my emotions and only feeling anxiety. And so I grew up very, very, very anxious. And I never was able to breathe into my belly. I would only breathe into my chest. So constantly in fight or flight mode. And, you know, as you get older and you get traumatized again and you get triggered and all these bad experiences keep happening to you, you eventually end up existing as like a bowl of nothingness, like just complete numb, no awareness, as I mentioned previously. And, and so, you know, I leaned into for the longest time I leaned into like painkillers and like alcohol and all of those things in order to just like continue to exist without even like, um, like with zero awareness of what was going on in my world and in my brain. Like, um, and so, yeah, it wasn't until I moved to LA that I really started to tap into like these wounds and these memories and these experiences. And then I was able to you know, organize the chaos in my brain and all these thoughts and these traumas um, into words and then into visuals. And then I was able to tell my story through my art. And yeah, that, that's, that's for me how I was able to do that. But I don't know. <laughs> um, I saw a video of a poem that you wrote. Yeah. Titled, I Could Not Protect Her. Yeah. Were you referring to yourself or to your niece? Was I referring to myself? Is that what you said? Sorry. Yeah, are you referring to yourself or your niece? Uh, both. Mm. Can you yeah. explain it more? Um, not exactly. I just have to um, be super careful of what I say because I really don't want to put certain people in my family in a position where they could be... Um, you know, I, but... I don't want to talk about your family. I'd rather only because they don't have our, they didn't approve to be in this interview. I want to talk about you. So I'd rather just you. So how did it reflect on you? Um, so I want to say um, there was a period where I went home um, for the summer for Christmas and I witnessed, I witnessed my niece. Um, she came to me and she was just like, Sarah, look what happened to me. And um, this was when I was like very deep into therapy and my own healing from my abuse as a child. And, um, and she came to me and she was just like, I'm scared, like, look what's happened. Mom told me to come to you. And I thought that was very weird. Like, I'm not her mom, I'm her auntie. Like, why would I come 
why, why would her mom send her to me? But this is how much of a stigma it is like in our families. And, um, and I froze instead of being able to like, you know, get that anger and like go after whoever did that to her. I froze, I literally froze. And I went into fear, like I was literally already sitting on the floor and I just like grabbed my knees and I just like froze and I got teary. And then my mom walks in and she's like, are you okay? And I showed my mom and we're all kind of just like, we don't know what to do. None of us know what to do because it's not talked about. And something that I suffered with is like being able to find safety. And how do I, like, I was never protected. So how can I protect myself? And how can I ever get to that place of feeling safe and not being in, in fight or flight mode? And um, yeah, so I left, I went back to LA and nothing was done. Um, and then I was traveling for four months and I ended up in Paris and the pal was at my hotel and it was the first time I was finally like still for like, it was like a night. And it, it was like the first time I actually was able to um, take the time to reflect on what had happened in, in December. Um, and I just remember just feeling so helpless and so ashamed that I wasn't able to protect my own niece. But then I realized like it was coming from my own like experiences of not knowing what to do in that situation. And so that whole moment for me was very like healing. I burst into tears and I was just one by one, these words came out, this poem came out. I literally wrote that poem in two minutes, two minutes, that entire thing, it just poured out of me. And I realized it was all this anger I was holding on to. I was angry at my mom. I was angry at my predators. I was angry at myself. And, and it just, yeah, it just exploded out of me. And when I read it, I was like, oh fuck, like, I gotta, I, I have to like turn this into a series. And that's how I could not protect her was born, like that entire photo series, because I realized I was ready to start talking about my abuse because it had such an impact on the way I exist. And the reason why I wasn't able to feel safe in any space, even if I wasn't in danger, because that's what anxiety does to you. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people, Sarah, who, go through trauma or go through difficult um, experiences, I would say the majority, they fall in the pocket of uh, the victim. They'll feel sorry for themselves. They'll self-destruct. They will blame the world. They'll be depressed. Some will co commit suicide. It's a very understandable and easy route to take because there are, you have so many reasons to take it. A few of them, uh, are usually the great people that we see around us. They know how to take that trauma and that pain and fuel a passion, whether it's sports, art, work, something. Would you consider yourself one of the few? I think so. I think that's apparent. Like, I'm not going to deny that. I've, I've mastered the art of expressing myself. And I know I have. And I know I do a great job at it. And it's something that's very natural to me. So yeah, I, I, I know I make a difference and, and yeah. You, um, uh, you mentioned that you, you had food, um, what, they, what do they call it? Like uh, food disorders, right? Um, and you would yeah. uh, throw up or you would starve yourself. And I read in an interview that 
you would do that, Sarah, in terms of trying to keep your body and physique as childlike as possible and you don't want it to grow. Yeah. Can you explain? Yeah, of course. I mean, it comes from two influences. It comes from my experiences of being abused and it comes from Western standards of beauty. And when <clears throat> the first time I was ever validated sexually was as a child, and that's the reality. Um, and so as a woman who's existing in a Western world, when you're receiving like that validation from men that um, as a child in your small petite body, like this is, this is how, how I learned to be um, valued. Being sexualized as a kid was how I learned to be valued. And as you grow up and as you grow older, I was repressing these memories. So I wasn't even aware by the time I was like 14, 15, 16, I totally forgot that that was something that I experienced. I repressed it so much, I compartmentalized it. And so subconsciously, I all I knew was I needed to appear childlike in order to be sexually validated. And so I didn't want my Arab curves to kick in. I didn't want to appear womanly because subconsciously I had the belief that I would only ever be validated if I looked like my childlike self. So that's, that's from that angle. But then you have Western standards of beauty. I grew up in the 90s. My idols were Kay Moss and Naomi Campbell and fucking Misha Barton from the OC. Actually, she probably caused my eating disorder the most. But like we were being told as women that in order to be accepted by society, we have to be stick thin and look like we've been doing a bunch of heroin and, and, like, and then just like walk through spaces and, you know, and, and look like these white women who are Eurocentric, who are blue eyed and cheekboned and like, you know, dark red eyes and, and just like stick figure. And so these were my role models. And so not only was I subconsciously under the belief that I had to look like a child in order to be sexually validated, but then everything around me was saying the same thing. And, and so that, and it's not just me, we, so many, so many girls and boys go through this of like wanting to conform to colonized standards. Like you will not be accepted unless you look like this. Um, and so that's how my eating disorders, like, I guess escalated and they, they still like, you never really recover from it. Like I, I go through, like right now I'm very healthy, but body dysmorphia is always something, if you have it, it it's just, it takes so much to get to that point of just accepting like, oh no, this is what I look like and it's beautiful and it's amazing as it is. But yeah, when you're so whitewashed and then you have these beliefs, it's just, it is really hard to recover and I don't think you ever fully recover. Um, and so I, my eating disorders manifested in different ways as in high school, it was anorexia in college. It was, um, I was addicted to the gym. And then like, when I got to LA, it was just like straight up throwing up constantly. <laughs> and like, and then there's also binge eating and you eat like to, um, feel, and it's just literally just manifests in different types of disorders, but it's a way of having control. And it doesn't come from it, like what you look like is the last because you could be, you could get to this goal weight and still be completely unsatisfied. It's all about the reasons why you do it. And for me, it was, it came from wanting control and knowing this is something I could control. Um, and so I like used it as a way of coping and yeah.
What is, um, Sarah, what is uh, destructive love? Oh, this is my specialty. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, no, in what context, though? Cause... In your context, because I, I read it that you went through many uh, relationships that maybe are labeled as uh, ones with destructive love. Yeah, I mean, so my relationship with love is um, constantly evolving because my beliefs growing up was love was very conditional. I was taught love uh, in a way that unless I was submissive and obedient and honoring the male in the situation um, more than my own needs, then I could I could never be loved. Like, and so. Um, when you grow up as an adult with those beliefs of like conditional love and like learning love from narcissists and people who are very like self, um, like their needs before anyone else's, uh, you, yeah, you learn to get into relationships where you're extremely codependent. You um, only wanna cater to the other person and you lose yourself in that relationship. And it's toxic, it's destructive because your needs no longer matter, you put, the person that you're in love with like on the pedestal and you just cater to them and you just become a shell of a human who caters to them and i want to say you know i used to believe that it was always the person i was in a relationship that was toxic to me but as i've gotten older i've learned that i'm the one actively choosing to be with people who remind me of the love that i was taught and you know i've only had two serious relationships and both of them were with very clinically diagnosed narcissists, like very textbook, like toxic humans. And, and I chose to stay with them. And I, even though I knew that they were master manipulators and I knew I wasn't myself and I was walking on eggshells in order to be with these people, but um, it, it was the way I learned love. And so now I actively am trying to break that cycle and making sure that anyone who enters my life, like I still maintain my routine and my schedule and I still see all my friends and then they're just an addition to it. The moment you give up your life and your daily routine and your passions and your friends and your family in order to be with someone, you have entered a toxic relationship, not only with the other person, but with yourself. And it, it People do that, we do that, I do that because of the way we were taught love. And like, for me, it was conditional love. I never learned to just like receive love for being messy or being angry. I was only ever receiving love for being, um, yeah, obedient. And, um, you know, just if someone, like for instance, if my, my dad was mean to me or mean to someone in, my family and he was rude instead of being angry at my dad I would like observe that and be like well how do I make sure he doesn't do that again and so I would go and shower him with love and then he would love me back and that was like a response that I had instead of doing the normal thing of being like fuck you I'm angry I'd be like no I'm gonna go give my dad a hug I'm just gonna give him love so he loves me back you know and it's it's all these behaviors we learn as a child in order to exist safely I'll keep saying that um that ends up manifesting into our relationships and so when i was going and getting into relationships with these narcissistic men if i was messy or angry or whatever they would gaslight me and be like you're crazy or 
um, you're so fucking ugly when you when you get when you yell like that or whatever. And then I'm like, no, I don't want to be ugly. <laughs> I don't want to be angry. And so instead of um, getting mad and walking away, I would just be like, how can I get them to love me? Instead of being like, fuck this, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And yeah, and so it took it took many years of like learning that this was something that I did in my relationships to know that I never want to do that again. And we have to break that cycle and learn love from scratch and, and know that love is from within first and making sure you love yourself enough to not put yourself in situations where you would ever give up yourself or sacrifice yourself to be with someone else. Absolutely. I mean, you said so many important things, Sarah. You said the fact that your definition of love was based on maybe an abusive or conditional one and what a lot of teachings say is our first definition of love is our parents. So a son will base love on his mother and the daughter on the father. And if that was, let's say, hard, tough love, then they will seek that kind of partner in the future. And subconsciously, they're like, why am I repeating this abusive cycle? Why can't I just be with someone? And that's where your friend will tell you, oh, I found the perfect guy for you. Look at his CV. He's perfect. One, two, three. And then yeah. you're with that person and he is really good, supposedly, for you. But you're like, why can't I be attracted to him? It's because it's not go taking you back to the comfort zone, which is your mm. first love, which is usually. Yeah. And the second thing that I really liked what you said is the person has to be an addition to your life, not a completion. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a big problem because you're a whole person. You're not an I, I get really irritated when somebody says, yeah, he completes me. No, no. You're complete. You don't yeah. need somebody to complete you. You can get somebody who compliments you. Yeah. So this is a very, maybe we don't focus on that word so much because it's, we're romanticizing the idea of completion, but yeah. we, you're created whole. You're whole. Yeah. Who made well, you, you, enter, you enter the world as love. You are nothing but love when you enter this world. You, are, you literally enter with zero beliefs from society. You just know that you are loved and you are whole. And it isn't until you start making these beliefs that you don't become love anymore. You become ego. You become, not ego, sorry. You become negative ego and positive ego. And all these like things that stem from mind as, as opposed to from stemming from soul, right? Because mm. like when I, when I think about it, I really do believe that when you remove your roommate as like I don't know if you've read untethered soul but like they refer to the mind as the roommate and it's just like if you can listen to your mind you'll realize that it isn't you you are just you and then your thoughts are your your ego whether they're positive or negative thoughts and so and these thoughts come from beliefs and they come from like the stories we tell ourselves and whatnot so when if you can remove that and just exist as love and go back to your core then like that's all you'll be that's all you'll know how to be but it takes so much work and so much therapy and so much awareness of knowing like when your roommate is just going off at you and when it isn't you know mm -hmm. um but i want to go back to what we talked about um in terms of like relationships and love like i think healthy love is and this is something I've been talking about a lot, like especially these past few weeks, because I think I'm gonna, <laughs> it's, it's a concept I'm working on, but um, the love that we all need to strive for is, it's, it's just like people who make you just wanna be your best self. And 
when you're around them, you just feel so fucking good and you feel so accepted, right? And I call these people my hype men and women. So like, <laughs> and, and like, I've made sure that in my life today, the only people around me are my hype men and women, people who see me and they know that even if I'm in a chaotic state of mind, they're just like, I accept you. I love you. I nurture you. How can I support you right now? Instead of being like, oh, she's in a mood. Let's stay away from her. They're like, come here. I love you. Like, let's all love each other, you know? And because what I'm realizing is, you know, as much as I always want to be this empowered, like boss bitch that gets shit done, like I'm also fucking anxious and I overthink all the time and I get messy and I get dark and I get depressed and I get suicidal sometimes. And like, and I just need to know that the people in my life can handle both versions of me and all the versions in between. And so like, I call the people in my life now hype men and women. And when it comes to intimate romantic relationships, that can't change either. The man that comes into my life has to be my hype man. He has to see me get down on his knees and like clap as I like walk through life. And I do that for him too, you know? And I think that's healthy love and that's love we should all strive for. And any, any second that's compromised and the person isn't willing to be your hype man, you got to walk away. You got to be like, oh, you're not, you're not what I need. You're not crazy. what I want. Lara, it's crazy how many things you're saying that I already say. So it's yeah. beautiful to see that it's like our ideas are already attracted because they're similar. And we have like a Zoom call between LA and Dubai. And I'm hearing things that I, I like to say. Uh, like I keep, I don't say hype man and woman. I say your, your partner should be your number one fan or one of your number one fans. And you, should do, and you should do the same. And you should do the same. Imagine, but the problem is, and I, I just recorded a video for my Instagram that I still didn't post, but it's about this poss possessiveness that uh, uh, takes over a human being when they fall in love. And then suddenly it's like removing the flower because you like the flower, you remove it, but then the flower dies. You should, if you really love the flower, really, without all of this huge ego, you should nurture the flower. You should have put vitamins and soil and sun and yeah. water and let them flourish. But then... And I, I'll repeat this. I'm going to repeat it again because I love this quote. And you know who Monica Bellucci is, right? Yeah. Okay. And I read this, Walla Sara, I read this maybe 10 to 12 years ago or something like that. And it's one of those things that never left me. Yeah. And she said in this magazine, when you love someone, whether it be your husband, your lover, your child, don't try to change them because if you do succeed in changing them, you might fall out of love with them yeah and i wish real. i wish people just did that because if i take you and i'm like okay i want to change here and i want to change there and i will ed edit here and then you're not sarah anymore i yeah. like you because you are sarah why suddenly i want to change it because it will make me feel what superior or i have a big ego and i'm feeding it no. yeah hype man and hype <laughs> woman is the right my friend actually said this to me the other day, but um, she watched something and she was like, this guy was like, um, we all get into relationships and we want to change the person to be more like us. So we're constantly like, why do you do that? Because it's like a projection. Like I would never do that. Why is she doing that? And would I want to be with a person who does what I don't do? So we're constantly trying to change the, our partners to be more like us, but why would we want to date ourselves? Like, what's the point of that? 
yeah no, i'm oh i'm here i'm i'm here and i will keep saying this but i i only want people who make me laugh people who can see me in my darkness and just be light and you know i'll give you an example <laughs> one this happened the other day but my friend and this was me trying to be her hype woman in a situation that was just chaos we were in mexico and um and the receptionist had charged my card and charged her card for like three nights and we only stayed one night and we're like are we being conned like what the fuck you need to like reverse this charge and I'm not one, I don't really, I don't get shitty over stuff like that. I'm just like, oh, like, let's just go. It's whatever. We'll figure it out later. But my friend is very, very like strong, opinionated. Um, yeah, very powerful woman. And she was like, no, we are not. We are not leaving until this is sorted. And so she's in the reception yelling, blasting at this woman who is not being nice at all. And, um, and I'm just like, and she's making a scene like people are like what is going on and i'm like how can i best support my friend right now <laughs> and i knew earlier we were shopping and she's like i just want a glass of champagne i just want to relax and this was the opposite of that so i went to a bottle shop i bought her favorite champagne i poured it in a coffee cup and put a lid on it and then I was like, Habibti, um, this is here for you when you're ready. I'm just going to be over there. Take your time. So instead of being like, girl, shut the fuck up. Let's just go. I was like, I know I, I know she needs to do this right now. So I'm going to let her do this because it's going to make her feel better after or worse. Who knows? But I just know this is something she needs to do right now. So I'm going to support her through this and nurture her in a way that she expressed she needed nurturing earlier on. And like, that was me being a hype woman for my friend. And then like later that night, I snapped at her and I'm not one to ever snap, but I was so hungry. And I just like, I gave her attitude. And then she looks at me and she's like, oh, we need to get you food. <laughs> and like, she just went and ordered me fries like that. And it's, it's like understanding like the way the people in your life want to be loved and then wanting to love them in that way, you know? And it's, it's just like you, you give and you take and you give and you take, but it's just like, you have to like, it has to be equal as well. You can't be the one to overcompensate. They can't be the one to overcompensate. It's just like this beautiful reciprocated appreciation for each other. And, but like for all of, all of them, not just like parts of them, you know? You, you made me picture a seesaw. Yeah, that's it. We're sitting on a seat, so I need you to push when I'm down, so I go up, and when you're <laughs> down, you need to push. But like, it's um, yeah, it's a balance. Um, I'll, I'll try to narrow it down because I think me and you can talk for hours. Um, Probably. <laughs> so, let's see. Tell me, how was your relationship with money? Ooh, good question. Um. I, oh, I guess um, I, we grew up middle class. Um, my dad was very wealthy before I was born. Um, he was, I want to say, went in Palestine, in Ramallah and in Qatar, he was building like traffic lights. He was being invited by um, all these different corporations to build satellites on, like when electricity was just like booming in the Middle East, my dad was there for it and my uncle. And um, when they moved to Australia, they came with money and, you know, they had um, investment properties and whatnot. 
Um, but then my dad's, I guess like he was supporting everyone in the family and then his business wasn't doing well and then no one supported him throughout that. And so I grew up with a dad who was very um, resentful. He was very angry. And when it came to money, he wanted to take care of us, but it was coming from a place of like grief, knowing that he wasn't be able to provide for us the way he once used to provide for everyone in his life. Um, and so I grew up never wanting to ask my dad for anything. Um, and by the time I was old enough to work and like make my own money, I did. And I wanna say after 16, I never asked him for a penny. Um, and so I am, you know, I, I've, I'm in a very comfortable place financially. <laughs> and um, I have, my relationship with money is always stemmed from, I, I do have imposter syndrome sometimes. I'm like, am I supposed to have this money? Do I deserve it? Like, you know, and I always like feel guilty about being able to take care of myself in this way. And I still am trying to figure out where that stems from, where that weird, weirdness like comes from why is my relationship with money so um hard to accept that i'm allowed to have it and it and it's it's because like i guess you know the people i used to surround myself with would make me feel like a bit of shame for being successful or not you know and so there was always just like <laughs> there's these weird beliefs i've had around it but i'm finally in a place where i'm comfortable to celebrate my wins and I'm comfortable to treat myself like on occasion, but I also want to be, I have that complex that, oh, it could go at any point like it did with my dad. So I want to make sure I'm not spending the way like people would, you know? Um, yeah, I would say I, I'm still figuring it out, to be honest. I don't fully know how I feel. I just know that um, I deserve this. I deserve the success and I've worked really fucking hard for it. And and that's what I have to keep reminding myself. Like, I shouldn't feel weird for being in a place that's like abundant. And yeah. How is your uh, relationship with food now? Great. I, <laughs> I eat everything. I love it. I'm, I'm in such a good place. Um, I, I mean, sometimes I feel a bit, um, I get uncomfortable if I can see I'm a little like, my body's changed a bit because I've been like complacent or I haven't exercised but then I like I really learned to just look in the mirror and be like you're still a hot bitch like you're fine let's go <laughs> like you know um it's it's taken years of work but I you know I'm in such a good place and like you know the people that I'm around like they they it's just love it's just full compliments like everyone's just so accepting and you just don't want to be around people who make you feel like you're not good enough. Life is short. Why you need that? Yeah. Um, what is shame to you? Shame is feeling like you were something wrong. You were someone wrong. Feeling like you don't, um, you're not accepted because of your actions and your behavior and your thoughts. Mm. Feeling like you were, yeah, feeling like you were wrong for existing as you are. And what is vulnerability to Sarah? Um, my entire being. <laughs> I'm just like an open mess now. Um, vulnerability is giving yourself permission to 
um, be as you are, feel as you are and communicate as you are. So just allowing it and allowing it without judgment um, and making space for the darkness and making space for the light and making it openly. What are you afraid of? Um, right now, um, what am I afraid of? My safety being removed from me. I'm finally feeling like secure and stable and it'd just be really unfortunate if someone just came and fucking tore it down. Yeah, because I'm tired. tired <laughs> I'm tired of rebuilding. <laughs> yeah. You think you'll always be rebuilding? Yeah, I think that's inevitable. But I think we get we develop skills to build quicker and build stronger foundations. Hmm. Um, best moment in your life so far? Uh, <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. That's I. Which one pops up? None. I have my brain's just like <laughs> the best moment in my life. Um, one of. It doesn't have to be me. Oh, God. Uh, I want to say when we were in Milan, my, my, my closest friend and I, this is so rare, I don't even know why this came up, but um, she'd just been on a 23-hour flight from Australia to get to me for our summer holiday. And we were staying in my client's house, which is this really big, beautiful penthouse. And... She opens the door, she's still in her airport clothes. She has like a thin jacket on and I'm giving her the tour because I'm like, this house is crazy. Like, let me show you, da, 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 da. And um, I was like, and this is our room and there's like a balcony that wraps around the whole house. And so um, I'm showing her and she opens the door and I'm like, look at this. And then I see her closing the door and I was just like, Bahad, no, don't close it. And it just shuts and we're locked out completely. We can't get back into the house. It's so comical. The um, There was a butler in this house and he's deaf, so he couldn't hear us. <laughs> our phones were, <laughs> our phones were um, inside. inside the house and my client wasn't coming back till the next day in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And then there was this guy who was staying in the guest room and he decided to stay out of town for the night. So me and her, my, my favorite, my most favorite human in the world, was stuck on a terrace <laughs> um, and I hadn't seen her in like six months and uh, we had nothing but a thin jacket and each other and we ended up being stuck out there for like 12 hours um, overnight and we got rained on we found solace under a table <laughs> and like with this thin blanket just hugging each other but we just look at each other and we're just like of course this happens to us <laughs> and it was just that moment of like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter where we are as long as we're together. It doesn't matter what the situation is. And it was just feeling that pure wholeness in a situation that could have easily been ugly and terrifying, you know? I think that's a, one of the best moments. It's like, it just brings me so much joy to think about as like, and knowing that we could just be so peaceful and calm in such a shitty situation. I think that's special. It's actually one of the best stories i've heard regarding that question because i ask it always imagine <laughs> well, being stuck with somebody you don't like i know 
that'd be terrible. <laughs> or you could walk out of their lovers or best friends, who knows? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, after such a good story, I'm going to switch to the worst moment in your life. Oh, um, whew, worst moment. Mm, there's been too many. <laughs> that one's easy. I'm like, oh, which one? Um, no. I mean, it gets, I mean, like, like it's really fucking dark. That's, I, there's moments of feeling like you're, you're just so like alone. And when I moved to LA, I really struggled to feel like I had a sense of community. I always felt like I was just doing everything alone. Um, I was simply just surviving and trying to like, just trying to stay here. Like my, when you're going through the, the initial stages of like unpacking your trauma and you're um, diving into these like memories of your childhood, like I happen to be doing those with no community around me. I had like one or two friends that I saw on occasion, but it was literally just me alone in this house, just doing the work and then going to therapy. And when you go sober for the first time as well, and you don't have like this your muses to escape like you literally just have to deal with everything um I think that's that to me is like it's the worst moments because you it's like feeling all your pain for the first time at once like all of it it just explodes and it's so heavy and honestly like there were so many times where I didn't think I'd make it to the next day like it was just so overbearing um and when you're doing it alone, that's like, because you only have yourself to fight. Like, who am I? Why am I still here? Like, if it's if I'm if it's just me, like, do I need to? Do I actually need to be here? Do I need to go through this? But that's also the best thing because it taught me to lean into my art and to tell my story. And had I not done that, I wouldn't have any of the abundance that I have now, and that healing and that wholeness. Like, so yeah, it's the worst, but it also is the best to be able to give yourself permission to go as, to go that deep and to get that dark and heavy and then to come out light and just like move through spaces with like a load off your shoulder, that's the best, so, yeah. Did you ever try to kill yourself? Uh, mm, no, not all the way, <laughs> not all the way. There was, there's definitely, I've been strong enough to just not, not go to that next level. Like I've been able to call on people when I was about to get there or when I was there and just be like, I'm not doing that, but I do need you to come over. I do need you to come get me. Um, you just got to push through, you got to keep fighting, you know? Of course. Yeah. Um, do you have any regrets? No. Good. Um... I had a question that I want to ask, but you gave me another one. Okay, um, hypothetical question. Mm -hmm. We take Sarah's heart. Mm -hmm. We place it in front of you here, in front of you. What would your heart tell you? Hmm. Stop smoking. <laughs> That's your lungs, not your heart. <laughs> It's all of it, it's connected. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. Um, 
I don't know. Say it would say, um, thanks for keeping me alive. You're doing fucking great. That's I would say it would, it would just be like you kill me sometimes, but kudos to you. <laughs> um describe your mother in one word. Resilient. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And what about Sarah in one word? Hmm. Oh. <laughs> hmm. Disruptive. Hmm. Yeah. First time I get that word. Yeah. What do you normally get? <laughs> anyway, variety, but not that one. Um, I want to thank you. You know, really. Thank you for sharing what you, you were willing to share, although we've never met before. Thank you for allowing the space to be vulnerable. <laughs> I think you're vulnerable with or without me, so it's good. <laughs> um, no, thank you. This has been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed um, diving in, even though I'm so tired today. <laughs> um, yeah, no, thank you. Inshallah. Meet in Dubai, yeah. <laughs> I was literally going to say that. Hopefully in Dubai, like this would have been also a pleasure to just be here in the studio and listen to you. I think uh, it usually uh, is very different when also we're face-to-face -face with people. Um, the energy is, is intense. So many people break down, men and women, and they, they start crying and they start talking. It's because it's two human beings just, you know, being... Uh, raw and intimate and and but I, I still think each um, chapter has to have I don't want everybody to cry in every chapter but sometimes it's beautiful sometimes you want it to be also very uh, strong like today I saw that you're fucking strong like I'm proud to see how strong you. you've been how resilient like your mother since that's the word you gave her you're the same <laughs> You know, and it's really beautiful to see that you're you're working on yourself. You have hope for Sarah. You want to help people, whether it's through art or through being so brave to use your words. It's so difficult. And yeah. considering the context of being Arab and all of this and your family won't agree or your friends, it takes a lot, Sarah. So, you know, thank you for being yourself and, and hopefully a lot of women... <laughs> will benefit from this and men I think. Yeah, thank you so much. It's so kind. <laughs> Yalla, we'll talk to you soon.